Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Good morning, church. How we doing? Okay, good, good. Couple claps, smattering of applause. Good. You guys are all as hot as I am already. All right, hey, uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH, and my Father's Day gift to myself was getting to hear from one of my former pastors. So I want to invite him up. Ed Izaki, why don't you come on up? Give him a round of applause as he comes. Everybody, this is Pastor Ed Izaki. He, uh, he'll tell you a little bit more about himself, but the most important thing you need to know is that he is, unfortunately, a Dodgers fan. So everything, put the fists down, we get it, okay? They're in second place behind the Giants currently. Um, world champions. World champions champion. with the asterisk next to it. So, because um, COVID, nothing counted last year. Um, anyway, regardless, everything that you hear him say from this point forward, I want you to view it through that lens and that, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, Ed is my friend, uh, my mentor, he was my pastor, um, and uh, actually Sarah, my wife's pastor for the majority of her life. Ed is a teacher, he is one of the smartest people uh, that I know, and so I promise you, uh, you will walk away from here today learning and hearing something new, and so uh, give it up one more time, Pastor Ed Izaki, thank you. Thanks, Pete. Yeah. Wow, it is great to be here with you today. I am just having a great, great day. Um, again, my name is Ed Ozaki. Uh, 28 years, I was pastor uh, at Kingsburg Community Church in Kingsburg, where Sarah Anderson's mom was the first staff person I ever hired there. Uh, she was our children's director until the school district snatched her away from us. And so long history with the family. Um, uh, my wife Gretchen is with me, my wife, 30, uh, 35 years, uh, who is, um, she's, I'm retired in 2019. 2019, when I retired, she finished her doctorate in nursing practice, and she is the chair of the nursing department at Fresno City College. And so I'm her uh, cook and her housekeeper. Now, uh, kind of role reversal thing. We have three grown children. Oldest is in LA in the music business. He's, a, um, he's an artist manager down there. And my second son is uh, doing a PhD at USC, and my daughter is actually in Mexicali, where it was a balmy 119 degrees yesterday. Uh, she's working at our sister church there in Mexicali, Vida Nueva Church, and working on her Spanish. She uh, wants to be a uh, dual language, uh, speech and language therapist, and she uh, is finishing her master's degree next year in uh, San Diego, at San Diego State. So that's all the kids, none of the kids have gotten married. They're, they put off everything, these millennials, right? So nobody's married yet, no grandkids. We see these children here and say, why not us, you know? It'll happen at some point. Anyway, as Peter said, I've known him forever. Uh, he was actually one of my son's camp counselors when he was in high school or college. And uh, I had the blessing of co-officiating his marriage to Sarah. He, he served on staff as the director of our evening contemporary service. And I want to congratulate you for calling him to be your pastor. 
Uh, he's a gifted Christian leader. I admire him, and you are in really good leadership hands as you face the challenges of being Christians in the 21st century with him as your pastor. I've seen the back uh, wall here in the corridor, the history wall of First Baptist uh, Church. There's a certain legacy in being a first church. My church in Kingsburg was a first church, um, uh, founded in 1884, and uh, that means there's rich, beloved tradition, but it also means that change can be difficult because we have this beloved history together. And so, believe me, I appreciate, as I see this beautiful facility, that uh, some, there was a building that we're not in that was left behind. Uh, there were, uh, you know, as we see this platform and uh, we listen to the worship music, I understand that there are those who are still longing for hymns and organs and all the stuff I grew up with. Um, but change is inevitable. And at some point, you, the people of uh, First Baptist Hanford, made the decision that was more important to look forward than to look back. And as I was driving in here this morning from Kingsburg, I passed brand new houses being built right out here on the corner. And your mission field is coming to you because you made that choice. You decided to hire a young preacher boy um, and, uh, you know, somebody's 30 years younger than me uh, because you had a passion to bring Jesus to all these little kids up here. And uh, believe me, I know that's hard, but you go, church. Thank you for, for being willing to be faithful to the gospel. Anyway, okay, we're going to Exodus this morning, continuing in the uh, series Into the Wilderness, an examination of Exodus. And because Peter is a giant fan, he's assigned me chapters 25 through 27 of Exodus, which is a little more exciting than watching paint dry. Um, <clears throat> So, uh, this is God's very detailed instructions to Moses about how to build the tabernacle, which was to be the meeting place between God and Moses, and how to build the Ark of the Covenant, how to design it, uh, which was going to be this golden vessel that would carry the tablets of the law, and also instructions, detailed instructions on the lampstand, on the table that carried the showbread, on the altar, and many of the other furnishings. And if you ask me, the only people who really get into these chapters are people who are either biblical scholars or who are design sort of people. Interior designers love this stuff. The rest of us, it's like looking at swatches of cloth. Yeah. Okay, it's just boring to us, but anyway, let me give you a taste of these chapters. First from uh, chapter 25, beginning of verse uh, 1. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from me, from each man whose heart prompts him to give. Uh, these are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for fragrant incense and onks, stones, and other gems to be mounted in the ephod and breastpiece. Uh, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. <gasps> 
uh, have them make a chest of acacia words two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to the four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles in the rings and on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give to you. You understand why there aren't a whole lot of memory verses that come from these chapters, right? And it gets, you know, more detailed in uh, 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 26, the tabernacle, um, make the uh, curtains of goat hair for the uh, tent over the tabernacle, 11 altogether. All 11 curtains are to be the same size, 30 cubits long and four cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together on one set and the other six in the other set. Fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set and also along the edge of the end curtain in the other set, then make 50 bronze clamps and put them together in the loops to fasten the tent together as a unit. You get the idea, right? 50 loops, not 49, 50 loops. And then finally, at the end, even the type of EVOO, extra virgin olive oil, that you have to use in the lamps don't bring the cheap, cheap stuff. Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the right light so the lamps may be kept burning in the tent of meeting outside the curtain in, that is front of the testimony. Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for generations to come. Uh, not exactly the most amazing things. Now, there are some symbolic meanings in the establishment of the priesthood and the sacrifice that happens in the tabernacle that have implications for setting up the sacrifice of Jesus in the New Testament. So I'm not saying it's not important, but in terms of practical application, I wanna go a different way than to look into those details of the different functions of the furnishing of the altar. And so, I, and I'm a guest preacher, so I could do whatever I want. So um, <laughs> this morning, I'm gonna take a 30,000 foot view of this. And I'm gonna say um, there are three very simple but deeply profound lessons that we can get from these passages in Exodus 25 through 27. And here they are. Uh, first lesson is God is holy. He's unimaginably holy. He is so holy and above us that you can't even fathom it in your limited human mind. Second. I am unworthy. I am not worthy to be in the presence of God in His holiness because I am sinful. And lastly, little things matter to God. God sweats the details. He wants 50 loops, not 49. If He cares about something like that, He also cares about the least significant details of your life and my life. So let's go into those lessons. First, God is holy. And Dave Fox uh, touched on this a couple of weeks ago. I want to zoom into it. The children of Israel at the time of the giving of the law had been 430 years in Egypt. That is a long time. So that's like twice the history of the United States. They were slaves in Egypt. It is remarkable to me 
that when God spoke to Moses and he said, remember the burning bush out in the wilderness and God spoke out of the burning bush and said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's astonishing to me that Moses even knew who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. After 430 years of being slaves in a country, in a nation that worshiped everything, so they had gods of the mountains, gods of the Nile River, gods of the ocean, gods of the desert, gods of the storm. Uh, they had uh, this habit of fashioning gods, so they would take a piece of wood or a piece of precious metal and fashion a god, and they would make that their god, so they bowed down to idols. Uh, and of course, you know the story of the pyramids. Many of the pharaohs of Egypt, after they died, were worshiped as gods. In fact, Ramses II, who was probably the pharaoh uh, during the time of Moses, he was the son, Ramses means son of Ra. So he's son of Ra, the god. And so they worshiped dead people, ancestors, as gods. Now, isn't it remarkable that 430 years later, the children of Israel even knew anything about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but they didn't know much. They didn't have the benefit of our Bible and the stories of Scripture. And so part of what was happening in these years of wandering in the desert, God was using that to teach his people, the children of Israel, who he was and who they were. He, they still didn't have a, a, a firm idea of who he was. Was he just one of a thousand different gods? Was this Yahweh just, you know, one other god to add on to the list? No. Remember, he gave you the Ten Commandments, and Dave did a great job of, of uh, suggesting that Ten Commandments are not just random ten rules that God came up with. These are laws that emanate from the very character of God. So it's, it's not random that um, the, eighth uh, the sixth commandment says, thou shalt not murder. Human beings are in the, made in the image of God, and so therefore we are not to take the innocent life of those who are in the image of God because that would be an offense against the image of God in another human being. Uh, seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. There's something about the marriage vow which God made. He instituted marriage. Uh, and the faithfulness of God, which is forever, that human, that human promise in marriage is the closest we get to God's loving kindness that endures forever. And so because of that, the marriage bond is intended to endure forever. That's the way God designed it. It emanates from the very character of God. Likewise, the tabernacle and its furnishings, even though the details may be a bit much for us, it point to, in physical terms, the exact attributes that we see in the Ten Commandments. So we see uh, those first four uh, commandments uh, you shall not have any other gods besides me. You shall not bow down to idols. Uh, you shall not take the uh, name of the Lord God in vain and remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Those are laws that elevate the holiness of God. The temple and its furnishings are physical representations to remind the people of the holiness of God. They're physical depictions to, uh, to bring them face to face 
with God's utter holiness and their unworthiness. Um, They're getting to know who God really is. He's not a God of their own making. He's not an idol that they can kind of bribe to try to get, you know, the idol, superstitious uh, idol. You kind of try to bribe the God in order to do what you want him to do. That's not our God. Our God stands above us, and he's impassive to those things. He's, not, he's immune to being tempted or being bribed. Uh, he's not that kind of God. In fact, the first commandment, you will have no other gods except me. This is the foundation worldwide of monotheism. It's the first example of anybody worshiping just one God. Everybody else has hundreds of gods. That's just how they did it back then. And isn't it remarkable that this little band, well, big band, actually a million people, um, of ex-slaves wandering in the wilderness is the first human culture to embrace the idea of monotheism, that there is only one God, all the other gods are fakes, they're idols. And uh, that's foundational for it. And the tabernacle reminds us of the holiness of God. This isn't just a a doctrine that we sing about, you know, in our hymns, holy, holy, holy. Uh, This isn't just something that we give intellectual assent to. Yes, God is holy. Uh, It is something that is very practical in our lives, or it should be, as we are uh, followers of Christ, to to acknowledge and dwell in the holiness of God is something that is very important to us. Um, When I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s, yes, I remember when the Beatles were actually together. Uh, I remember black and white TV and party lines on the telephone. That was a thing that had a wire that was on the wall and we talked through. Um, Anyway, in in those days, uh, we went to church and it didn't do much for us because it was our parents' type of church and it was very formal and God seemed kind of aloof and uh, you weren't sure you could actually kind of be close to God and he might be kind of angry with you. And so because of that, we invented something called contemporary Christian worship. We brought electric guitars and drums into the church and we started to use language about God that was intimate language. That God is my rock and my salvation. A lot of it was borrowed from the Psalms. That he is, he is, he loves me and he cares for me. He's compassionate. And there's a sense of which uh, the, the, the old hymns were about God and the new uh, worship courses were to God. So I was singing to God and there were prayers, and there was a language of intimacy, and that was wonderful because God does love you with a tender, everlasting love. And so it was a very, very good thing that happened. Unfortunately, human beings have a big difficulty balancing and keeping both the reverence and awe of the power and majesty and perfection of God and his love and compassion and his tenderness toward us. Sometimes with human beings, familiarity breeds a little bit of contempt. I'll never forget when Gretchen finished her doctorate, you know, our our middle son, he's the intellectual in the family, and uh, he's working on his PhD, and uh, all of a sudden, 
he saw that mom wasn't just mom, who he ignores, and she's always yelling at him and telling him twice and three times, and what does she know? She's just a nurse and this thing and that thing. And once she finished her doctorate, he's calling her to ask about how to format his papers and how to use certain programs to set things up. And they're interacting as equals and colleagues on, uh, you know, academic stuff that I have no idea what they're even talking about. It was, it, it was wonderful to see that because I had always admired my wife's intellectual ability. But to him, eh, she's just mom, you know? We ignore her. She just kind of, you know, talks about her flowers and we kind of ignore her. Um, and, and see that, we can do that with God too, where we're so intimate and we're so you know, relying on his love for us, which is there. I'm not trying to, you know, make God a, an object of your fear or anything like that. But at the same time, God is more than just your buddy. He's more than just your friend. He's the awesome, powerful God who created the universe. And sometimes when we get too familiar to God, with God, we're seeking what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he describes cheap grace like this. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without cost, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So we get a picture of a God who just says, ah, don't worry about it to our sin, as opposed to, I hate sin so much that I would wipe you out in an instant, except that I decided to take that punishment on myself. See the difference? When God is too familiar, I'm tempted to think that God is basically a mirror. He sees things the way I see things, and he's there to make my problems go away. If um, You can ask Peter about this. I didn't ask him, but I'm sure he's had this experience. The worst moment in being a pastor is when somebody comes to you, their mind is made up to sin, and they tell you, God just wants me to be happy. Barf. Where does that... Did I just say that in a sermon? Oy. Um where does that say that in the Bible? God just wants you to be happy? God does not want you to be happy. God wants you to be holy. And oftentimes, if you actually read the Bible, the people who decided to follow God, their life got worse. God is not there to solve your problems. A lot of times, you follow God and you get more problems. Paul was doing just fine in the hierarchy of being a Pharisee. He was rising up the ranks. He had ability and what have you. He decided to follow Jesus. Life got worse. Shipwrecks, beatings, finally martyrdom. But it was worth it because he was following the almighty, perfect God. God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. God is always sending people like you and me to places they don't want to go and allowing them to suffer for serving him. But in the end, we see the steps filled with little kids who are singing praise to Jesus. And then we say, 
I think it was worth it. God stands above all human history, and the nations are but a drop in the bucket. And sometimes we forget the power of God to take the things that we think are impossible and make them possible. One of my favorite theological books is one you, if you're Father's Day, read this to your kids uh, when they get to a certain age. It's C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And um, if you know the book, uh, it's a story of a group of youngsters in England who find their way into a magical land where animals talk and where uh, the great lion, Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the books, has returned. And uh, there's a passage in this first book where the children are uh, at the home of the beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're hearing about Aslan because pretty soon they're going to meet him and they want to know a little bit more about this uh, king who has returned. Um, Lucy asks, is, is he a man? Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Don't try to make God tame. Don't try to make God safe. Safe God can't rescue you. Safe God isn't willing to send you into suffering for the greater good of his kingdom. He's not safe, but he's good and you can trust him. Second les lesson, I am unworthy, and God's holiness reminds me of my need. Now, you can't encounter the vastness of the ocean. You go to the shore, and you look at the ocean, and you feel a little small, don't you? Or you go up into the mountains, and you see the Milky Way before the uh, moon rises, and you see the Milky Way out there, billions of stars, and you have a sense of your own insignificance, your own smallness. And uh, it's actually a good feeling, isn't it? when you feel like uh, the vastness of all of creation and I'm just this little piece, and instead of making you feel like, oh, you know, I'm despairing, it feels, uh, it feels good because if you're a follower of Christ, you know that God knows your name even though you're so small and so uh, insignificant. You echo the words uh, that we find in Psalm chapter 8. When I consider your heavens, the words work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Those are good moments for you and I when we acknowledge the greatness of God and our own puny insignificance, our broken sinfulness, and we say, oh God, who am I that you would care for me? Who am I that out of 
Six billion people on the planet, you would know my name, and then I would be significant to you. Every one of these kids who are up here, there's at least one set of eyeballs on them. There's a parent, and they were waving. You know what? When you're standing up among the vast billions of followers of Jesus Christ, his eyes rest on you as if you were the only one there. That's a huge, huge thing. So God's holiness and my insignificant isn't a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. It's not a reason to feel guilty. It's not a, a reason to, to feel like you don't matter. Instead, it's, a, it's something we embrace because um, it gives us a tremendous sense of appreciation and awe for the expansive, uh, amazing love of our Father. We live in a world without awe. We're truly overly entertained. We got streaming services, we got internet, we got 97 million different sports. We've got all of that stuff. And in our time, we've cultivated irony and sarcasm to insulate us from ever having to admit that other people might be smarter, more principled, or more deserving than we are. We want to bring, bring everybody down to uh, their lowest level. And so because of that, only rarely are we ever confronted by that which makes us want to turn from our own self-interest and to devote our lives to something bigger, something that matters, that is greater than us, something that might even cost our lives. Uh, a number of years ago, about 15 years ago, uh, we went to Normandy, the American Cemetery in Normandy. Anybody been there? Right, yeah. Okay, um, my father was in the 442 in World War II, so he wasn't on Normandy. He was actually on a troop ship um, on his way to Anzio to fight in the Southern Theater to keep the Germans from reinforcing the beachhead at Normandy. But because of that, I've always been fascinated. My father died when I was young, so I was always fascinated with World War II history because my father was a part of it. His Purple Heart was on our mantle. It's on my mantle at my house today. I should have brought it uh, to show you. Um, but anyway, wanted to go, and when we were in France with our family, I wanted to go to see the American Cemetery there at Colville, sur Mer, in uh, the Normandy coach, coast above Omaha Beach, where the Americans came ashore there to great loss of life. And about 9,000 American service uh, people are buried there in the American Cemetery. So we went there, and you know, I had told the kids a little bit about what it was, but you know, teenage kids in history, and you know, they're kind of yawning. It's not really, you know, a big thing for them. And uh, there are about, I don't know, a thousand people there at the cemetery the day we were there, many of them French, a whole lot of Americans, but also people from other countries. There's Asian people there, tourists, uh, who were there. And I don't know why they were there, but they were there. Um, and so we're kind of walking around, looking at things. It's beautiful there. And look, you look down the cliffs, and you say, wow, they came up that under machine gun fire? Wow. Um, but uh, the hour struck. I don't know what time it was during the day. Sometime during the afternoon. The hour struck, and without warning, a bugle started to play. And they were playing taps. And without anybody being on PA, without anything being announced, with any, without anybody, you know, telling, organizing people, it was amazing. A thousand people milling around this cemetery, including kids, stopped. 
and you could have hear, heard, in fact, you could hear the birds tweeting. It was, it was remarkable, the silence that descended at that moment, and everybody stopped, stood at attention. Some people turned toward the flag, put their hand on their heart. I know for me, a huge lump, you know, grew in my throat, and I, you know, I looked around to make sure I didn't have to, you know, nudge a child into silence, and I was astonished. There they were, silent, standing, listening to taps being played, and it was a spontaneous moment of awe as everyone there was brought into the sacrifice of what 9,200 American servicemen, most of them just young men, my dad was in his 20s, gave their life in order to rescue Europe from fascist tyranny. And it was, it was one of those awesome moments. We need to fill our lives with that kind of awe. And in fact, every time we do church, we try to, we try to make it that sort of experience of awe. That when you come here, you get a, a, a picture in your mind of God so tremendously powerful and great and yourself so unworthy and as if you were the last number called. You know, the ship was leaving to heaven and the last number called and you looked on your ticket and you made it on the gangplank as they were pulling it up. And man, I almost missed that. Thank, thank you uh, to Kyle and to his team because uh, whenever I come here to worship, um, I feel like God is waiting for me here and I have that sense of amazing grace. Who am I that you would save a wretch like me? He's not a tame lion, but I can trust him because he's good. Okay, last uh, quick lesson. Little things matter. Details. 50 loops, not 49, not 51. Uh, dye the skin red, not blue, not green, red. Uh, details matter. It's a reminder to me that God has exacting standards and he doesn't look at the things of the world the way we do. And sometimes those things that are so small as to almost be insignificant to us mean the most to God. And even though God's love for you and your salvation is not dependent on your moral perfection, we can all agree on that. We're all sinners here. We all have that in common. Yet, when you choose to obey, even in the small things, it matters. And it matters big time. This is Father's Day. Uh, Theodore, your new father, right? Is that your first? Was that your first? Okay. Let me give you a tip. They don't give medals for the most important things. You know, so if you think, oh, I'm going to be the greatest dad in the world, you know, stand on the medal podium, and they're going to put the medal around my neck and give me a kiss, and everybody's going to applaud. That's not how it works. Uh, the stuff that you just do out of plain faithfulness, and you don't want to do because there's a ball game on, that's the stuff that makes the difference. Nobody's going to give you a medal for those small acts of faithfulness that build over a, up over a lifetime, and then at the end of life, you, you see these young Christians who are taking over from you, and you go, oh, how did that happen? You know? I know uh, both of uh, Sarah's grandparents, on both sides, 
One pair sang in the choir at my church. One sang in the choir in the church down the road. And uh, these are not, they're not going to write biographies about the Fries and the Bergstroms. They're not going to, you know, well, Bergie was mayor for a while, but I imagine that's on a plaque somewhere. But it's not like anybody's going to, you know, they're going to be the famous people of Kingsburg or anything like that. And yet, their faithfulness in the small things to their family, to their God, to their church, I get to see the benefits of that in Peter and Sarah's ministries in their kids. You see, it's the small things that matter. This is Father's Day, and dads, sometimes it's thankless, and sometimes it's sacrifice, and sometimes you get kicked in the teeth. That's just the way it goes. But ask any youth pastor the difference a dad makes, and you will get stories. Better yet, ask any teacher or social worker. My son taught for two years in inner city uh, New Orleans, and in that time, he met one father of all the hundreds of students he had. Fathers were absent. You wonder why that's so messed up there? No fathers. What difference does a father make? Huge difference. Better yet, ask a cop or a probation officer. How many of your clients had a good father at home? Not many. Some, but not many. Dads make a difference. It's possible for us guys to spend way too much time and effort agonizing over global and national concerns when we really can't do anything about them except get mad. And frankly, if you ask me, the greater thing you could do in those situations is demonstrate to your kids how a grown man deals with disappointment and frustration. The greatest thing you could do is not sign a petition or go march in some parade or something like that. The greatest thing you could do is demonstrate to your kids how a Christian deals with disappointment and frustration. Because we're living in a world where it seems like people's idea of what you can do with your frustration is pull out a weapon and hurt somebody, right? No, you are the teacher, especially to your young boys, of how they're going to handle disappointment, frustration, failure. Because if you're going to live in this world, you're going to have those things. The most important thing, Dad's Theater, taking notes the most important things that you will ever do no one will ever see except god but because of that it counts it counts forever be faithful in the small things makes all the difference as we close today i want to give you an opportunity to do a small thing that really is the biggest thing i'm going to give you the chance to sign up today with the God who created the universe, to put aside the feeble gods of the world and your desires and your comforts, to put aside a superstitious view of a God who's there to make your life easy and to do what you want to do, and to sign up to follow the God who led his people out of slavery and into the promised land. Make a decision that will totally reorient your life. Now, be warned, it may not make your life easier. It may make your life harder. 
but I guarantee that will also give you meaning and direction and purpose and best of all, confidence in a future glory that is worth giving your life for. So you don't have to live for yourself anymore. There's something higher. There's something nobler. There's something purer. And you get to be on that team. It's very easy. We call it the ABCs. Start by admitting that you need help, that by yourself you messed up. That's an easy thing to do, right? If we're really honest, we are not good at running our lives uh, by ourselves. I need help. Then believe that God has the power. If he created the entire universe, he probably has the power to fix you. He probably could do that, right? To believe in him and to believe that Jesus loved you enough to die for you. And so because of that, you're not burdened by sin and guilt and and shame. Instead, you're set free to do the right thing because it is the right thing and it's worth doing. And then call out to him. Ask him to come in to be your Lord and Savior and tell him that you'll follow him all the days of your life. We're going to have a moment of prayer uh, before the end of the service, and I'll be up here. You're welcome to come and talk to me if you make that decision. Talk to Peter about that um, because uh, often somebody will make a decision, and a couple of days later, the devil will start whispering, that didn't mean anything because it's too small, right? That's too small. No, it's not too small. Small things like that changed the course of history. Did when I was 14, 15 years old, I called out to him, life has never been the same. And that can be true for you as well. Let's bow, shall we? Almighty God, we have to admit that we are not as good as we think we are. We are not as smart as we think we are. We are certainly not as worthy as we think we are. Left to our own, we mess it up. We rebel against you and we hurt those, even those people we love. God, there's got to be a better way. We're at the end of ourselves, and we believe that Jesus Christ, through his atoning death on the cross, can set us free from our destructive self-centeredness, our sin patterns, anything that has a grip on us. We can be set free. And so now we would call out, and we would say, please come, remove our sin, send your Holy Spirit within our hearts. Lead us in a different way. Remake our lives that we might be holy before you and that we might point others to Jesus, our Savior. God, we thank you that anything that we say in your name, you do. And you have not lied. You will come and save us from our sins and be our Savior forever. We pray these things in his name. Amen.